The cancer journey is unique for everyone. It's time to figure out our new normal, and there's no one-size-fits-all manual. Welcome to Unspoken Cancer Truths with Jen Cochran, because surviving is just the beginning. Welcome to Episode 57 of Unspoken Cancer Truths. I'm your host, Jen Cochran. My guest this week is the founder of Cancer Champions, LLC helping individuals and families gain clarity in the confusion of a cancer diagnosis. She compassionately consults, educates, and facilitates for individuals and their loved ones as they navigate a complicated healthcare system, empowering patients and families to make life-altering decisions with confidence. Prior to founding Cancer Champions, Dana amassed a wealth of oncology expertise over a 25-year career within the biopharma industry. I want to give a huge welcome to a returning guest, Dana Hudson. So today I'm joined by a previous guest, Dana Hudson, and we are going to be talking about all the challenges and silver linings that have come from this last year of facing COVID. We've really all been in this soup together and people being diagnosed with any kind of diagnosis that's been challenging, people facing COVID, that's been challenging. And there's also been a lot of silver linings. Like for our family, uh, my husband's father was diagnosed last June with stage four liver cancer. And one of the blessings of COVID was that my husband was on work from home. And never in his like 25 years of working had he been in a situation where he could work from home and he was able to travel, continue working, be with his family for an extended period to support them and help that process. So while it was a very challenging time, there were also a lot of blessings. So Dana, I'm really excited to have you here today to talk about these challenges and silver linings and to give people some advice on how to navigate it because we still have a little ways to go. So welcome. Thanks, Jen. It's always a privilege to be with you and I very much appreciate the opportunity. Well, I'm so glad to have you here today. So one of the things that we have been talking about was kind of the long-term effects of the virus. And what effect that has COVID had on cancer diagnosis and treatment? Because that's been a challenge for people as well. That's a really, um, it's a good question. Um, and I will share just a, just a sliver of personal. And that is um, my mom, who was diagnosed a year ago, year and a half ago with um, lung cancer. So we went through this journey of cancer treatment and the era of COVID together. So um, not only do I have some professional experience with the subject matter, but I can sort of speak to what it was like from a personal perspective as well. Um, but the statistics are saying now that we're almost a year out, um, the statistics are really saying uh, the American Cancer Society started surveying people like right after this happened. They started surveying people in active treatment, and they also started keeping track of the statistics going forward through the registries. And um, what we know is that there 
to 50% of the diagnoses, it's gone down. Diagnosis has gone down 40 to 50% from April, 2019 to April, 2020. So we already know that fewer people are actually being diagnosed and obvious, well, maybe obvious to some, not so obvious to others, but people just aren't going in for their screenings um, because either institutions have, have cut out elective screenings or people for their own, their own risk benefit ratio. They just didn't feel like it was worth it to put themselves at risk of exposure to go in and have their preventative checkups. Um, so we know that diagnosis has gone down. Uh, the other thing about treatment is this is what the American Cancer Society found out. And of all the people that were in cancer treatment actively when COVID hit, we know that um, there has been a, there was a 79% delay. People, 79% of the people that were actively in treatment were delayed or abandoned treatment altogether or um, just didn't get their elective surgeries or whatever. That all that all ha- that all came to a, a close, and really, it was in person visits, imaging, and surgical procedures were the things that that shut down. And so, what we don't know yet, Jen, is what the long term effects of this are going to be. But based on the data that we have, and if you're extrapolating out, the data is their assumption and their estimates are that well, there'll be a one percent increase in deaths from colorectal cancer and breast cancer over the course of the next 10 years, which if we take that out of percentages and talk about actual people, they're looking at in excess of 10,000 people that are, that will excess death that we wouldn't have had to have potentially had COVID not happened. So there's definitely an effect that we're going to see 10, 20 years out from this thing. I know I had read a statistic in regard to breast cancer specifically that screenings were down something like 79% mm-hmm. and that incidence actually was also down um, 52%, which is very much in line. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a, a highly occurring cancer. So it does kind of tend to... Right to weight the scale a bit. Well, and that's um, why they, they looked at breast and colorectal, right? Because we have yeah. endoscopies and we have all kinds of preventative things that we do to catch these diseases early, mammograms to catch them early. And they're just not, they're not happening, which is why they focused in on those two cancers specifically. Yes. And it's amazing and very important to say the percentage of people who get colonoscopies every year, I think it's like 64% of the eligible people in a normal year right. get screened, where if we could get that number to 100%, and I know it's weird in this time, but it's like hundreds of thousands of people that it could impact by just getting those screenings. So so, so, so important. Well, and you know, another, um, another area that people don't have a tendency to think about is, um, the financial stress and the financial impact. People are concerned about losing their health insurance and many have lost their health insurance during this. They've lost their jobs. 
They've lost their coverages. And because of that, that also was an indirect effect of the virus. People weren't, it's not that they were afraid to go get their screenings, but right. they lost their insurance and, and the financial burden of, of paying out of pocket. They just couldn't do it. Yeah. And the financial burden of cancer is, is, can be crushing when you have all those things in place. Absolutely. So it's definitely, and I know you have a, a lot of tools <laughs> in your toolkit and, and people that you can refer people to for assistance with that. Cause they're the other thing that I think we forget is that there is a tremendous amount of pharmaceutical company resources and things like that resources mm -hmm. for people who are in dire, dire need. Mm -hmm. For sure. One other area, Jen, I'm sorry, just to, cause I just popped into my head. Yeah. Yeah. Clinical trials too were yes. dramatically affected by the disease. So um, I believe NCI, the, the statistic that I read was 60% of the cancer clinical trials were just shut down um, because they either, either it was a risk I know I had a client that kept trying to get into a trial at the NCI. Um, he had a, a pretty aggressive prostate cancer and just the, just the delay and the delay and the delay. And that was for a lot of reasons. One, they didn't have the protocols in place yet to keep people safe. And so they were, they just shut everything down. But then the second piece of it was so many in, of the resources within the research um, apparatuses went to COVID research and all of that. And so it just, it diverted, it, it, it just sucked the oxygen out of the room from everybody. Yeah. And the doctors that have been needed to be redirected in a lot of cases. Yeah. Just from the sheer fatigue of the length of time. For, for sure. So I think we did talk a bit about um, future consequence. And definitely the the trials, the delays in trials and the ending of trials is going to have future consequence. Um, what would you say uh, from an immediate consequences for those with cancer? Um, how has COVID-19 affected people who were actively in treatment? So that's a good, real good question. So we move from the people that just didn't get diagnosed, right? So now we move into what happened to those people that were midstream, right? And that's where, um, that's where my mom fell. And physicians had to do, there was a lot of risk benefit um, conversations that were had between people. And if, if for some instances, um, a lot of the clinics shut down for the immediate, for like, you know, as soon as it hit. They shut down until guidelines could be put into place and they could um, they could figure out how they could safely continue to administer treatment to, to patients that needed it the most. You know, for people that had, you know, potentially curative treatments that they were on, obviously the risk to, to against the virus oftentimes was less than the risk of not getting the treatment. And so they were able to continue on with their treatment. It depended, it went from place to place, Jen, right? So some people were more open, others were more shut down, but in general, um, 
they, they very quickly put together some guidelines, you know, the American Society for Clinical Oncology and the European Society for Clinical Oncology, you know, ESMO and, and the American Cancer Society and NCI, they all got together and put together lots of guidelines on how they could safely uh, continue treatment for most people. But it was an individual thing between your, the patient and the oncologist, because not everybody wanted to take the risk of, of exposure to the virus. Right. And in probably 99% of the cases, people who are in like chemotherapy treatment and uh, even in the cases, some of the other adjuvant therapies, you're immune suppressed. Right. So that poses new and exciting challenges. Right. So I wanted to circle back on something you had mentioned earlier, which I think affects this category of people as well. You mentioned elective treatment. Mm -hmm. And this area of elective treatment becomes really curious because what is considered elective may not actually for the patient be considered elective. Right. Right. Um, we have a fam we have family friends who my mom bumped into at the drugstore and um he had been diagnosed with bladder cancer and was had been scheduled for surgery. They had gone in to meet with the doctor and the surgery had been canceled because we were back in we were in the post holiday bump. All elective surgeries were being canceled. And they were like, what? Right. What? How is this an elective surgery? They're, this is a surgery to remove cancer. How is this an elective surgery? So how was your experience with that through the process? Do you have any... Yeah. Yeah, though, that's a really, so I did have, um, I did have a client who, um, in this, in his case, it was a biopsy that was necessary. And it was, um, it was a cancer that was moving relatively quickly. And so we did not have the luxury of waiting, you know, two or three months and push the biopsy back where he was supposed to get the biopsy. They were under just, you know, from week to week, it was just lockdown, 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 and it was considered elective. And we ended up, um, he had a conversation with his healthcare team, right? To, to do the risk, you know, what was the risk of putting this off anymore, considering the pace of his disease, his oncologist, because the oncologist, the surgical oncologist couldn't, his hands were tied by, by his institution. So we utilized the surgical oncologist to help us identify another surgeon that, that everybody felt comfortable with. And he actually had care transferred over um, to another institution and got his biopsy done um, in a timely fashion. There was another institution in the area that actually had a little bit more lenient. Um, they had opened up their ORs. And, and so it was just a sort of a creative, you know, way to, to go about it. But in some instances, to your point, you know, people just, they were, they were over a barrel. The other piece of it I'm thinking of is some of the uh, genetic counseling that goes on, right. And, and people that learn that they have a genetic predisposition. I'm thinking, you know, primarily of uh, BRCA1 and BRCA2, and then women wanting to proactively have their, their breasts removed um, in a double mastectomy as a preventative measure. And some of those were 
you know, considered elective. And so they were, but in those instances, they were conversations with genetic counselors and, you know, their, their risk was not imminent. Um, and it was okay. They felt to, you know, pull back a little bit and wait a month, two months before they had that, that procedure done. So it was, it was very specific case to case. Um, but you're right. There were a lot of people that, which is, which unfortunately, Jen is going to play into what we talked about earlier. Some of these people that were not able to have these surgeries and how is that going to affect, you know, a, a later diagnosis or a diagnosis that is a later stage, um, than it would have been had they gotten the surgery. Right. And, and fortunately in my family friend's case, they went back and said, you know what, this isn't okay. We're not okay with this. Yeah. Figure something out. And they actually were able to, to figure it out. And as it worked out, it was a, became a lesser long-term issue because they were able to get back on the surgical calendar and just the mental. Yeah. Yeah. Involved in that was. The stress was unbelievable for people and, and not just for my, my clients, right. It was, it was for the physicians. I mean, the stress that the healthcare system went through from the physician side of things was horrific um, because it goes against everything they're trying to do. right? Right. It was very difficult. Yeah. It's been a really challenging, really challenging time for sure. Some of the other things, though, that happened that I think were benefits a little bit, if we want to focus a little silver. Yeah, um, for sure. um, One is some of these guidelines that were put into place actually are going to make a lot of sense moving forward. Some of them will stay um, and and they actually made the system more efficient. So it it actually is, is going to be helpful. Some of the telehealth, I'm sure everybody that's listening to us has had some interaction with telehealth at some point in this past 12 months. And it really, um, because Medicare, you know, relaxed some of those HIPAA authorizations and the way reimbursement works and everything, they we really utilize telehealth in a very efficient manner. And so if you didn't have to go in for an infusion the times in between your actual treatments, we could minimize your exposure by having, you know, having telehealth. And I think the physicians, I mean, think about not having to travel, not having to wait in a waiting room, not have to, you know, just all of that that goes into a doctor's appointment was eliminated. And it was really in, in many instances, once everybody got the technology down and everything, it was a, it was a positive for a lot of people. Yeah, I definitely experienced that myself. And I, I feel as though it's in a lot of ways, it's opened up some access. Yes. And that's been really interesting to experience as well. Um, Doctors are utilizing the portals more and you can send a note. I remember having to wait back in June for an appointment with the ENT. And when I saw the nurse practitioner, she's like, yeah, you're not waiting the next time. Like, you just send me a message and we'll get you taken care of. And so that I think embracing the technology from a really Mm -hmm. positive perspective Mm -hmm. 
He was like, we could have done this over, <laughs> over a Zoom. In the beginning, they weren't incentivized by reimbursement to use telemedicine because they there was no reimbursement structure for telemedicine. And so now, now it, it's been relaxed a little bit. We've figured out how to reimburse people for virtual visits and, and voila, it, we're going to use it now. So um, it's, it definitely could be a positive for sure. Moving forward, definitely could be a positive. Um, the other thing that this did that I think is a positive is it forced families and people to talk about advanced directives. Yes. Um, for a lot of reasons, you know, whether they were fearful of getting the disease, you know, getting the virus and because this virus was so unpredictable on how, you know, what your response to the virus was going to be, that we all just had to assume it was going to be for the worst. And so a lot of people um, had those difficult conversations with family members and, and really got their wishes on paper in case they became so, you know, incapacitated that, that they weren't able to speak for themselves, which became even more important considering hospitals weren't letting visitors in, you know, you were on your own as a patient. So um, it was very important to have your advanced directives in place. And I think as a society, um, we've taken the stigma sort of off of that conversation. And I think more and more people actually are putting those, those sorts of directives in place. And that is so important. I cannot emphasize enough how, and I don't care how old you are or what circumstance you've had, like the proverbial bus can happen at any time. And I know my husband's father, my father-in-law passed away in September. And one of the things they did when my husband was out there in July was finalize all the plans. Mm -hmm. And like, we could have been looking at six months to a year. They're just, it was that we didn't know. Right. It was that kind of no man's land of we'll wait and see. And I know for my mother-in-law, having had all those things done, like Mm -hmm. all we had to do was call and set a date. Yep. And then bring a few things over. Like they took care of everything. My father-in-law had all his wishes met. He reached out to all the people that he wanted to have involved. It was an opportunity for him to connect to people mm-hmm. that he maybe hadn't talked to in a while that he were important to him in his life. Mm-hmm. Um, while he was still healthy enough to do that. Yep. And I remember my mother-in-law chuckling at the cho- some of the choices mm-hmm. because they weren't choices she would have made, For but him. she felt like they were choices that represented him so well. Um, really good. And being really happy that those all those things have been taken care of. And then in this challenging time, of losing someone you've been with for so long and the whole family like coming together, which fortunately we were able to do that. We're not huge numbers. Right. We able to do that safely. But 
it made that time very different. Yeah. Because it wasn't a lot of planning. It wasn't a lot of, I don't know what choices would be made. And I've experienced the other side of that where we're all kind of looking at each other like, why isn't this written down somewhere? Why are we making these choices now? Yeah. No, it's, 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 and, and I love what you said. I mean, the car accident can happen any day. It doesn't, it doesn't matter how old or how young that you are. If, if, if you're hearing us right now, you need to have an advanced directive and, and I'm going to put a plug in for five wishes. Um, it's a nonprofit organization. And if you go to fivewishes.com, um, you can download a PDF of the conversation. It, it'll lead you through the conversation and it's, it's a legal document and it's, it's as simple as you know, when, when, maybe when everybody gets together for the family, the next family, whenever we're allowed to get together again, um, to just, you know, have everybody talk about it, not just the older folks in the room, all of us, you know, everybody. Yeah. I was having a conversation with a guest a few months ago and she is a stage four metastatic breast cancer survivor. And she was saying how she had done a like end of life planning class with wow. other people who were state who are also stage four. And she was saying how they were laughing and like that it yeah. was not a depressing situation. Like they were, and she said her children weren't really thrilled with her when she push the conversation. Right. Um, but then everyone was glad that they had had it. That's um, so- well, I'd like to tell people it's like, there's, there's peace and being in control. Like we're, we're not in control of so many things. So the things that we can take control of, it, it's, it's, it's a good thing. Yes, absolutely. That is absolutely true. So vaccines, everyone's favorite topic right now. Do you feel like this is a light at the end of the tunnel? Um, Or is it a step on the path? I think it's a step on the path. I have to say my, I'm a little biased because I spent so much time in the biotech industry with vaccines and with new molecules. And so my bias is a little towards the process. I'll just have to be upfront, but I also know the rigor of the agency. And I know that things are not passed through, um, easily. So this truly was a feat of, in my mind, what can happen when we all collaborate, when yes. we're not all trying to hang on to our data and we don't want to share our data with other people because we need to have the patent and we need to be the first ones to market and we need to do this. This to me was a beautiful representation of what can happen in the system when you take all of those other things out of the way. So for me, the vaccine, I feel, is a step, definite step in the right direction. Um, there are three different vaccines right now. And, and there's, from what I can gather, I mean, it's a conversation that, that somebody that's dealing with a cancer diagnosis obviously needs to have with their healthcare team, For sure. but the CDC, the NIH, ASCO, um, they're all saying that with the exception of a few people, um, that cancer people with cancer or cancer survivors should absolutely feel safe in getting the vaccine. 
for sure. Um, the one thing to think of is, you know, like with any vaccine, the va all three of these vaccines are harnessing your own immune system, right, to fight the COVID disease. I know there's been questions about changing the DN your DNA and these these vaccines, two of them utilize a messenger RNA, which that's just the component that that is sort of the cookbook that tells your genes what to do. It, it doesn't necessarily it's not the the recipe itself. It's just telling it how to implement. And when those work, they go in, they um, turn on something within your cells that produces the protein that your immune system needs to identify to be able to take the, take the bad guy out. Right. And so it's essentially just putting a mark on, on these cells heads so they can, it's training your immune system to recognize the bad guy, which is what it's doing. Those are two of them. And, and those two vaccines, um, require two shots and one, one to rev up your immune system. And then another one to, to bolster it a little bit later. Um, the one from J and J that just came out is a vector vaccine, which just, if you think of like a Trojan horse, it's more of like a Trojan horse. So there's a virus that's not the corona, it's not the COVID virus um, that is injected with a, a protein that the that your immune system will recognize. So it's like a Trojan horse. So it's then put in your body and it trains your immune system to recognize and take it out. So the point is all three of the vaccines are working with your immune system. You're not getting live virus in any of them. So you're not being injected with COVID. Um, and they seem to be very efficacious regardless of, you know, disease. The only thing to think about, and this is, and this is with any vaccine, if you have a cancer that, um, or you're on therapy where your immune system is currently suppressed or therapy that you've gotten in the past has kept your immune system suppressed, um, then, then it's a question of how effective is the vaccine going to be? But it's not a question of, is it going to be safe? It's just a question of, can your immune system mount a good enough response to be able to really um, protect you? And that's a question to have between you and your physician. Yeah, absolutely. I have a number of clients who are immune compromised from medication that they take and their doctors. It's been interesting because different doctors have different guidelines and mm -hmm. different and just slightly different guidance. Um, so it's mm -hmm. definitely important to have that conversation with your, your healthcare team and, and they can, they've got all the up-to-date information. So Right. And, and you as a consumer, as a healthcare consumer can also go on the CDC website to get up to date information there. They are, you know, updating that constantly, as well as just, you know, your state medical society um, would have information that most up to date information, because as you know, like, you know, the J&J &J vaccine just got like things are happening um, daily, almost, which is a good thing, which is why I think we're in a step in the right direction. And if I may, Jen, you know, one of the other things that I wanted to just point out as a silver lining, if we have time. Yeah, absolutely. Is um, this particular situation, I feel really empowered people to be better advocates for themselves and better healthcare advocates for themselves. Because, you know, people were finding they couldn't go to the doctor with their loved one. 
um, or gosh forbid their loved one was hospitalized, they couldn't get in to see them. And they were taking steps that needed to be taken to really maximize that unfortunate situation. And um, I think that's another silver lining that came out of this is people people learned how to find their voice and how to advocate for themselves in, in this unfortunate situation. I mean, I, I had one client, I helped her. She had um, a loved one in the hospital and I'm, and this, the loved one that was in the hospital, unfortunately was not doing well. And um, she said, well, they told me not to come cause I can't get in. And I'm like, no, that no, get in the car and go over. And, and we went through, it was very respectful. It wasn't, you know, but it was like, tell them why you need to be there and the benefit of you being there. You're going to be eyes and ears for, you're going to help the healthcare team. You're going to help because she's not in her right mind and she can't make decisions for herself. And, you know, you will, you will bring your own PPE and you will comply with all of the components. And then we also had, um, I called her oncologist and we have the oncologist sort of backdoor from inside the system to say, we're going to make an exception here, but no doesn't always mean no. And that's what people need to, to really understand and to be able to um, just say, no, no, that's not going to work for me. And this is, and this is why, because a lot of times there's a way in um, it's just easier for them to say no. Right. And the why really matters. Like in, in my father-in-law's case, my mother-in-law was taking him to his appointments. It was June, July. It was hot. Yeah. She was like, I cannot drive an hour and sit in a car. Yeah. Like, where am I supposed to go? Yeah. <laughs> and then they figured it out and they yeah. figured out how, how to make that happen. And, you know, in, in every situation, there's, there are alternatives. Yes. Sometimes we just need to see the creative side of, yes. of things. <laughs> yes. Well, and, and, and you have to think ahead, right? So, you know, you want to make sure you're, you're utilizing the time. You want to make good notes. You want to have your questions. You just, you want to be very efficient because they can't sort of just linger around like we used to. And as long as you have a rationale for being there and you're going to be respectful to the process, it doesn't hurt to ask. And a lot of times you actually can get in. So, but if you can't get in, can I just say a couple yeah. about that? If you can't get in, because there are times when you just aren't going to be able to get in. So if you can't get in, may I suggest for somebody that's in the hospital, you either, well, one, you call the nurse's station like once a day and the best times to call any hospital are between two and five. So you call once a day and you, you have your list of questions before you call. So you ask, you know, were there any tests done today? Have there been any changes in the status of my loved one? Um, what, what happened during the medical rounds? Like what, what did they talk about? And are there any tests coming up and how is my loved one doing just overall? How are they doing? If, and, and then when you hang up, thank the nurse very much and say, I'm going to be calling back at the same time tomorrow. I'm going to call tomorrow because I want to get an update tomorrow. And the other thing that I tell my clients is ask the either case manager or the nurse, the head nurse or a physician, it's best if you have a physician contact, that you want to be included anytime somebody comes to talk to your loved one at the bedside. 
So to call, just call me on the phone so I can listen in. And so I can ask my questions. And so I can hear what's going on. I mean, that is the least that they can do and they will do. So if you can't get in, you can get in. It's just a matter of if you're physically going to be there or if you're going to be there virtually. And the, the other thing is to just be respectful and to have your, your questions and be prepared because you, you want to help them. Like you want to help them. I'm going to help you guys help my loved one. I'm not here to be a pain. I'm here to help, help you. <laughs> right. So those are just little tidbits of just things that I've learned over this course of this past year of how people have gotten in. So for people who are not allowed in, yeah. what forms and things should they be asking to have completed that gives them the ability to call and get the information, say from the nurse's station or what kind of permissions do they need to have to be able to put that into place? Yeah, that's a good question. So you, you just, you typically just need a HIPAA form. You need a, um, um, it's just a form signed by your loved one that basically allows any of the healthcare team to be able to discuss the status of your loved one with you. Some, in some instances, that's not possible. Like it's not possible to get a signature from somebody or it's not, they've been somewhat, if you're a family member and you can prove you're a family member, they have been, they've relaxed that a little bit, realizing that, you know, this is a very unforeseen, no precedent set situation. Right. If you're still having trouble, say you can't get a HIPAA form signed and you can't get anybody to, to interact with you. Every hospital has got a patient relation department. So you want to, they either call them patient relations or they'll call them hospital advocates, or it's somebody in the patient relation department. You want to contact somebody in that department and say, I am, I am not being communicated with, and I need to have better communication between the healthcare team, myself and my loved one. And they will put somebody on the case to, to make sure that everybody's talking to everybody. Excellent. That was so much great information. I so appreciate you and all the work that you do for your clients and all the advocacy that you do on behalf of your patients. So thank you so much for being here today. No, Jen, thank you. And thank you for asking good questions and, and um, just spreading the word that awareness is the awareness is the key. So what you do is so important. And I am going to put a plug in for you too, because mental health um, has been a huge piece of keeping yourself um, as healthy as you can be while you're in this lockdown situation, especially for caregivers and for the patients themselves to stay active, to practice mindfulness, uh, to watch your nutrition. It really does affect how you feel um, and, and exercise. And so somebody like you, Jen, is has been a huge asset to, uh, to people during this, this time. And so thank you for the work that you do. Well, thank you. I so appreciate that. And now that we're heading into spring, and we have these longer days and we have some light at the end of the tunnel here with vaccines and the weather is getting a bit nicer. Hopefully we can all start to emerge a bit. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you, Jen. So thank you. That concludes our episode for today. 
I am on a mission to interview new guests every week to bring more connection and share more stories and hopefully helpful tips for cancer survivors, caregivers, and support organizations that are out there. If you, if that might be you, connect with me in my Facebook group, Surviving is Just the Beginning. You can also connect with my guest this week, Dana, and other past guests there as well. There's also an option to connect with me directly for a coffee chat. You can find that link in the show notes or in the Facebook group. Knowing there are others with similar experiences helps us know that we're not alone because surviving really is just the beginning. Thanks for listening and have a great week. Mm -hmm.